We think a map is, is there maybe for directional purposes, but for most of um, time, a map is really created more to show a picture of something, a picture of the United States, a picture of, of Morris County. So if you're going to draw a picture of your life, who would be at the center of the drawing? Now, because you're in church this morning, if I asked you to answer that, what do you know some spiritual guy is going to say? God, right? And that's a good answer. But the truth is, for a lot of us, we struggle with that being true on a daily basis. Theologically, yes, we get it, but, but oftentimes there's something else. So what is it for you? What would be, if you drew it out, what would be at the center? Your kids? I, I spent the last 36 hours in a gym in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, watching wrestling. And so I, I could easily come home and tell you that my kids are at the center of my universe, and many times they are. Your spouse, your job, your career, your accomplishments, yourself. First of all, that, uh, the drama this morning was very powerful for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which was how good that young actress is. That's Michaela Steiner. That is actually um, Dave and Nina Heck's granddaughter. Um, which is pretty cool. They started this church almost 40 years ago, and here's their granddaughter now on, uh, on the stage in their church. And what Michaela was dramatically showing uh, each of us is that we get so consumed with building our stories, building, in a sense, maybe our brands, build, building our futures, trying to achieve our dreams. The funny thing about our dreams is, if you're honest, heck, a lot of times the dreams you're dreaming, a lot of the times the dream, what Michaela was dreaming, it wasn't even Michaela's dream. It was a dream that was kind of laid on or kind of given to her, maybe by well-meaning parents or friends or, or, or just the culture we find ourselves in. And when things start not going like the way they should, when you're always the bridesmaid and never the bride, when your life doesn't look like your buddy's life as it plays out on Facebook, you can get pretty discouraged and you can start to lose hope really quick, even at a young age. I was thinking about this drama this morning and I started thinking about how it compared to my friend that I told you about last week. Uh, my friend and I that started our, our professional careers together in the finance industry and he excelled uh, way beyond what I did. First of all, he didn't go into ministry, but he, he, even before he went into ministry, he was flying and he was CEO of a, a company in New York City, a trading company in New, in New York City. And uh, he had a beautiful wife and uh, a beautiful house and beautiful kids. And um, yet, as I told you last week, he called me a few weeks ago and he said, I really need your help. And I said, what's the matter? He goes, man, my life stinks. And I hate my job. And, and I started thinking about what my friend had said to me. And he was saying the exact same thing that Michaela, this young woman, was saying about her life. And it got me starting to, to think about it a little bit, right? One is depressed because she didn't get what it was she wanted. And the other one was depressed because he got what he wanted. And it turned out that he was like the dog that caught the garbage cup or truck, you know? Like didn't know what to do with it once he got it. It makes you question, what's the greater disappointment in life? There's a line from a song I like. It says, uh, is a dream a lie if it doesn't come true, or is it something worse? Last week, we looked at the characteristics of hope. Things that are just very practical things that hopeful people have. Hopeful people understand how to live their lives. They understand what it is that the Lord is, has called them to. They understand, I have a plan for getting there. They understand obstacles will come in the way. 
This Sunday, this final Sunday before Christmas Eve, I want to speak to you about the power of hope, though, for you and for people that you love. Now, if, if I were going to paint for you a, a picture map of my life, um, the more I reflect on it, I'm just being honest with you, and these are the things the elders I know after the service will say, you shouldn't say that because people are going to think you're a degenerate. But the more, the more I think about my life, the truth is, if I painted a map of my life, um, there would be a big old picture of me right smack in the center of what's going on. I mean, I love my kids a lot, and I, they know I love them, and I love my wife a lot, and she knows uh, I love her. I, I really love my job a lot. I even like some of you guys for, most, for the most part. But in my heart of hearts, if I'm just really honest with you, if I was to draw a map of what things look like in my life, I would probably be at the, at the middle of it, and everything's kind of floating around, revolving around me. Now, that might make it sound bad coming from your pastor, um, and I feel bad that, that you know, I, there's moments in my life where God is very central to my life, but in other points, uh, the, somehow I replace him. But here, here's the truth. I think that that is actually central to what it means to being a human being post-Garden of Eden. Once, once there was a time we were created in such a way where our hearts were turned towards God and turned towards each other, where we actually cared about others more than ourselves. You know, kind of that thing that Jesus is calling us to, that thing that's available to us as he lives through us, as the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to love people more than ourselves. But for the most part, in our world and in my own brokenness, I've raised up something even higher than that. And it's the pursuit that's something, look, we, it's so deep in our culture, I'll give it to you right now, right? Uh, you learned it when you were in third or fourth grade. You live in this country, and at the heart of this country, you are guaranteed the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Whose happiness? Yours. And so when our plans come up short, when, we, when we've built these dreams and these ideas and these plans, and when they don't come true, or maybe we accomplish them and we found out there really wasn't anything there anyway, it can get very discouraging and really frustrating and take you to maybe some dark places. Now, let me make a comparison here. I want to make a turn in this talk. Around the time of Jesus' birth, in the nation of Israel where he was born, it was being occupied uh, by the great power of Rome. Now, in that era, when they made a map, when the Israelites would make a map of the world, um, they would create it in such a way so that Jerusalem, even though that Jerusalem wasn't at the center of Israel, they would create it in a way so that Jerusalem looked like it was at the center of, of, of Israel. I saw a map from the 1500s that was created this morning, and it had different um, leaves on it. It had three leaves. One was Asia, one was Europe, and the, but at the center was Jerusalem because the map wasn't really to get someone where, somewhere. It was to show them what was important. And for Israel, Jerusalem, more specifically, the temple in Jerusalem was that place that was at the center. The temple is where the, the, the Jewish people during Jesus' life believed that God's presence actually dwelled. It wasn't a thought. It was, no, 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 this is real. God is in that temple. It was the holiest place on earth. It was the heart of everything. Many of you know there's, there's sacred buildings in others, other faiths, but those sacred buildings are usually where you go to escape from earth. I'm going to go to that place because if I get there, it'll be different than here. But the temple was very different. It was completely unheard of. 
It was a sign to the human race that God who created the world wanted it back. Every place on the map had been messed up by sin, including the place occupied by my body and yours, and we can't fix this sin problem. And ever since, there's this issue going on with me with this struggle to care about others as much as I care about myself. But in this world, God put the temple in Israel to show his people that he is not done with it. He's coming to reoccupy it. He intends to evict sin and rule the earth in justice and in love. And so for Israel... Despite what the Romans had done to it in terms of desecration, the temple stood and was talked about as the holiest place on earth. Because there was a remnant of people, week one in this series, there was a remnant of people who still believed that God was capable of fulfilling his promises and would fulfill his promises The temple for people leaving in Jesus' day, at least for those who had given up hope, the temple for them was not a place to escape earth, but it was a place where actually heaven touched earth, where heaven met earth. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, Israel would think about heaven and earth not as two completely separate spheres, but they actually overlap and interlock, and for Israel, it happened at the temple. There's heaven, the place that God dwells, and there's earth, and there's the temple is where heaven and earth meet. God decided in this one tiny little place, people could, this is such so good. God decided that in this one tiny little place, people could get a glimpse of what it would be like if heaven invaded earth so that they could keep hope alive. And that's why the Israelites loved the temple. It's what kept hope alive. That's why they revered it. That's why they came to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year to remember that one day this whole earth will be as filled with the glory of God as the temple is now. That's why the temple was so central. That's why Jerusalem was at the center of the earth. Now Jesus, he has a really interesting relationship with this temple. You might know right after his birth, in the story of Luke that we've been reading all along, this chronological telling of Jesus' birth, Right after Jesus leaves the temple as a baby, the next time that any gospel writer talks about him is when he's 12 years old. And if you know the story, Mary and Joseph take a 12-year-old Jesus to Jerusalem for Passover, and where do they go? The temple. Because that's where heaven intersects earth. That's where the world can see a glimpse of what heaven is like. And you might remember that Mary and Joseph, after Passover, leave, and they go on about a day's journey home. And about a day into this journey, they realize that this young Jesus, this young 12-year-old Jesus, is no longer with them. And they set about on a three-day journey to find the missing Jesus. Really interesting number play going on there, right? Jesus is gone for three days. And they go back into Jerusalem. And when they find Jesus, where is he? The temple. Because this is the dwelling place of God. This is where heaven meets earth. And when they say, Jesus, what are you doing here? He says, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? The place where heaven meets earth, the place where the presence of God dwells and is tangible, sat in the center of Jerusalem, in the center of the Israelites' world. And you see it in the Christmas story. Once again, I love it that you see it in the stories of the people that didn't make the manger scene on our mantles. First week we spoke about Zachariah and Elizabeth, and last week we talked about Simeon. I want to pick up on the story of Simeon again this morning. If you remember the story, Mary and Joseph run into Simeon the first time they take their baby to the temple. This is what the Bible says. It says, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, 
He was named Jesus, the name the angels had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of the purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. Now this, to a 21st century audience in Mendham, sounds pretty religious, pretty rules-oriented, maybe even a little silly. But these rules had certain purposes for the people of Jesus' day. They're really all about what happens when heaven invades earth. Think about it. Circumcision is not merely some legalistic thing. It's a picture of being in a covenant relationship with God. Being given a name is what happened in the temple because by it, where I meet God, when I meet God, I get an identity before God. Being consecrated to the Lord means I get a purpose, not from my mother and father, not from the, 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 the political institutions or the educational institutions, but I've been given a purpose from God. And the offering of a sacrifice happened in the temple as a picture of being forgiven by God. Because the temple represented what it was like for heaven to come down to earth. One writer said, see, it's not accidental or coincidental that for many centuries, acts like these took place in the temple because the temple is the place where heaven invades earth. And when heaven invades earth, amazing things happen. Sins get forgiven. People get purified. Nobody's become somebody's. People get a name. Outcasts enter into a covenant relationship with God. Human lives are given divine purpose. Israel loved this. That's why they loved the temple. And that's why they waited and waited for the day that the presence of God would go beyond the temple. That's what Simeon was doing when we entered the story with him last week. He was an old man that had told, been told by God that he was not going to die before he saw the Messiah come. Before he saw the tangible presence of God moving out of the temple. Now, if we've learned anything about hope in these last couple of weeks, it's this. Hope always involves waiting. Hope always involves believing and enduring and trusting. Zechariah and Elizabeth did for a child. It was granted to them long after they thought possible. And now here comes Simeon, an old man who still believes in the promises given to his fathers, who still believes that God is active and he is in this temple and he does care and he's going to fulfill his promises. And so despite the years clicking off, despite all of his friends probably giving up hope, despite Roman guards walking around the outer courts of the temple, he still believes and prays and he waits. And where does he wait? In the temple. Because the temple is the place where heaven meets earth. Now no sooner does Simeon walk away after meeting Jesus when onto the scene comes another character that somehow escapes our mangers. It's a woman named Anna. Simeon's most likely an old man. Anna had been married for seven years, but her husband had died. And the best reading of Luke's text about Anna is that she lived for another 84 years as a widow. You think it would be easier for her to give up hope? You see, she had young, she had promises and dreams and beliefs like, like Michaela portrayed this morning. But they died with her husband seven years into marriage. It's been 84 years. But that's not what the scripture says. Here's what Luke says about Anna. He says, now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age. 
and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this, this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. She never left the temple. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all of those who looked for redemption in Israel. She was still, after 84 years, a waiter and a hoper and a dreamer. And, and she then spoke, once she met this Jesus, she spoke about to all the, of the child to all of those who were looking forward, everybody else who was waiting. Anna was part of the fellowship of waiters. That's the Advent season. That's what that means, waiting. And so Jesus grows up. He's not always, I love that Ricky Bobby part of the movie where he goes, I like to think about little baby Jesus, you know. But that's not, that's not who Jesus stays, and Jesus grows up. And I told you the story of when he's 12. When he's 12, where does he go? He goes to the temple. Because the temple is the place where heaven meets earth. And Jesus comes back into the temple again one day. And you might know that story too. It's about 30 years later. The temple had changed it had become the site where religiosity had gone wild. And because of the persecution of Rome, it had become not just a center of worship, but a center of commerce and finance. It was in the temple now where the Romans kept the records of debts that were owed by the Israelites. It was the place, it was in the temple now where the Jewish religious leaders of the day oppressed the poor and the broken and the marginalized. They weren't raised up like Mary's song said they would be, but instead they were oppressed how? By making them pay overpriced markups for sacrifices that were demanded of them. And Jesus, 30 years later, walks into this scene, and he just loses it. Makes a whip. He starts flipping over tables, and he cries out, It's written, My father's house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And for Jesus, this was a serious issue, because at this moment in time, the temple, which was supposed to be a place where heaven met earth, suddenly started to look like a place where earth was invading heaven. And then Jesus started doing some really controversial things, things that get a guy killed. Things like saying, I tell you that there's one greater than the temple, and he's here. Greater than the temple? Greater than where heaven meets earth, Jesus? Yeah, who's that? It's me. Jesus says, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. What? Our, fa our fathers have been building this for hundreds of years. What do you mean, Jesus? One writer said this, this language is staggering. Jesus is talking and acting as if the whole idea of the temple was to point to him. He's talking as if everything in the temple was just merely a picture of what was actually coming true now that he arrived on earth. He's claiming his own personhood, his life, his teachings, his community, his body, in his actions, through him, heaven has invaded earth and heaven has left the temple. Now, remember what happens when heaven invades earth? Sins get forgiven and outcasts get taken into covenant relationship with God. Nobody's become somebody's. The poor in spirit get blessed. People get identities. Things happen like Simon gets renamed Peter and Saul becomes Paul. And human beings receive a divine mission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
Heaven becomes overlapping of earth. Heaven invades earth again. And anybody that wants to get in on this can. Jesus' invitation is the same this Christmas as it was that first Christmas. Heaven has indeed invaded earth and it can still invade your life, your heart, your mind, your soul right here, right now. If you repent, if you change, if you believe. When Mary and Joseph, think about this, when Mary and Joseph entered the temple, they thought that they were entering the house of God, but it turns out that they took God home with them to their house. Their house became the house of God. Last night, Joe and I were invited to um, uh, some friends, uh, new friends. We'd never, never been to their home before. Gentlemen, I, my wife likes nice houses, and so do I, so I don't say that with uh, any kind of begrudging nature about her. But uh, this was one of those moments where you pull up to the house and you go, oh boy. <laughs> you know, it's like right out of Martha Stewart and it's got the giant big front porch on it and they had this massive uh, addition put on the side for entertaining guests, you know, and it was just, it was really great. And, you know, then the worst part was they wanted to give us a tour of it. <laughs> so we took a tour of it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was really nice. And the worst part of the whole evening was when the woman said, oh, you know, we're going to be selling the house in a few weeks because we're moving. And I saw Joan's face light up like Christmas morning. And, <laughs> and I drove home. We drove home last night. I pulled into my house and I sat down in my family room and I said, why do I live in this little cardboard box here? Like, this is em embarrassing, right? But God doesn't think like you and I think. When God was looking for a new house, did he want the temple? No. I mean, that had always just been a temporary idea. I mean, did he want a palace? No. That was for Herod. That was for Caesar. That's for a different kind of king. How about a dung-filled barn and a manger bed? Yeah, God says. That seems about right. That's what I'm looking for. That's the house I want. I'm going to go there because God has left the building. Heaven is invading earth. The temple was a picture of it, but it was only a picture, and now it's coming true with Jesus. Jesus is heaven invading earth, and he says that in a way that is unforgettable for anybody in his day, it'll change your life and my life right now if, if, if what we're doing together, if we see that this is an invasion of earth by heaven, it doesn't stop with Jesus. Think about the story as it plays out. Yes, heaven invades earth through his life and his teaching. Heaven invades earth on the cross and in the, res in the resurrection. But it also invades earth at Pentecost. And then it, it, it invades earth when people begin to invite Jesus into their homes. And it's still invading earth when people invite Jesus into their lives. And heaven starts invading earth through regular people. You see, my friends, do you know who you are? Paul said... You yourselves are God's temple. For we are the temple of the living God. That means you and I are where heaven meets earth. God, the God of hope, he desires to make his people 
A people of hope who literally, with and through his power, invade the world with hope. The hope of a God who is not inactive or dull or disinterested, but who is the Bible calls him. His name is Emmanuel. It means God with us. You were created. Your default mechanism is not despair is not discouragement. You were created to have your default mechanism be hope because you were created in the image of God. But not just that. You were created actually to be fountains of hope. To be messengers of great news. You see, sometimes I wonder if we don't believe this is great news anymore. Sometimes I wonder because of the silliness of what's gone on with our faith and things that people have said and the dumb stuff that people have done in the name of Jesus has gotten us to believe that this is not really good news anymore. But it's still pretty good news. I'll tell you, when I walk around the garbage dump in Guatemala City, I see a people who are longing for heaven. When they talk about heaven, they smile and light up. I don't sense that here a lot of times in men of New Jersey. You know why? Because we've carved out our own little piece of heaven here. But when you, when you get with, with, with what Mary said, where the poor and the broken and the marginalized, where they're going to be lifted up, it's different. There's hope there. And you and I were called to be the messengers of that hope. Most of the world lives, lives the lives of shepherds. But for every shepherd that's ever sat on a mountainside, for every employee that's ever sat in a cubicle, for every housewife that's ever existed under a mountain-high pile of laundry and wondered, is there any purpose for this? This is your story. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night, doing their job. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said what the angels always say, fear not. For I bring you good news of great joy for all of the people. For not just the religious people. Not just the good people. I bring you good news for all of the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Good news of great joy. For you, good news of great joy. To you, good news of great joy. And most importantly, through you, good news of great joy. Heaven meets earth no longer in the temple, but in Jim and Jana and Mark and Melissa. Christ in you is the thrill of hope. I don't think, this is going to be controversial, but Michaela was up here and she was saying all these calls that have been put on her life that weren't being accomplished, these things that she had hoped for that weren't happening. I don't think your call is to be a banker or a lawyer or accountant or a teacher. I think your call is to set up a temple right in the middle of a bank or a courtroom or a practice or a schoolroom. That's the call of God on your life. That's your purpose. That's your hope. Anna, 84 years of waiting and when she finds him, when she sees him, all she can do is speak of him to those who looked for redemption. See, the world is still pining. It is still laying, bent in sin, and still pining for somebody, a messenger of hope. It's what you have. In his book, The Anatomy of Hope, Jerome Groupman writes of a factor vital to holding on to. I love this because this is secular science, right? This is what he says. He says, the, the way you hold on to hope is, quote, the human connection. 
He says, Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel says, quote, just as despair can come to one another only from other human beings, and he would know that, hope too can be given to one another by other human beings. In the face of emotional pain and traumatic loss, it's often, very often, another person who stirs hope and holds on to us. It might come from the hear, hearing the journey of someone in a group who suffered in a similar way. Your story matters to the hope of others. You know that painful thing you don't want to relive? That might be oxygen for someone else. It might be the connection to a therapist who holds the hope for both of them as they journey together. It might be the positive expectation of the future heard in the laughter of your children. It seems that we need hope, and it seems that hope makes a difference in our lives. Does it dispel all pain? No. Does it take away all sorrow? Certainly not. Is it a cure for all illness? Absolutely no. But it gives something that's very important, his conclusion. It is part of the human spirit to endure and give a miracle a chance to happen. You are vicars of hope to a world that desperately needs you on Christmas. You're the living temple. You're the place where heaven has invaded earth. You're the messengers and the mouthpieces, the hands and the feet of hope. This is why Peter, when he writes about how we should live, says, first you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks you about your Christian hope, now why do you think someone might ask you about your Christian hope? Because it is strange in this world to be a person of hope. If someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to tell your story. You have a story. In his book, Making Hope Happen, Creating the Future You Want for Yourself and for Others, author and Gallup senior scientist Shane Lopez says that hope is literally contagious to the third degree. They've studied hope as part of social communities, and what they've discovered is that your friend's friend's friend can influence your hope and your happiness. While it might be hard to believe your hope in, in, your hope in you, the hope in you in a small but meaningful way, is related to the hope of someone you never met. The hope that is in you is contagious not just to your friends, but to your friend's friend's friend. Your life matters. You weren't created to be a banker. You're created to set up a temple in a bank. And how does this, this is so fascinating. How does he say that it happens that we pass along hope? What is the best vehicle for this contagious thing? Peter said it in the Bible, and scientists come, come back and say the exact same thing. What is science? It says you make hope contagious for your friends, your workplaces, your schools, and your communities by building a network of hope, by modeling hope through your stories and deeds. By modeling hope through your stories and deeds, you provide hope through instrumental or intrusive support. The thrill of hope turns out is you. Christ in you. And so this Christmas, you have a story to tell. You don't just have good news of great joy to a weary and we worried world. You are good news of great joy to a weary and waiting world. Jesus is heaven. He is still heaven invading earth. And when you invite Jesus to make his home in you, when you volunteer somewhere to help a left out child learn to read because they matter to Jesus, heaven invaded earth. When you seriously pray for somebody who's in spiritual, spiritual turmoil, Heaven invaded earth. 
When you confess holding a grudge against somebody and you reconcile with them because Jesus says that's what we do, that's why he died on the cross, heaven invaded earth. When you get an idea to be generous with your money and you actually are generous with your money, heaven invaded earth. When you take the time to look somebody in the eye and love them despite what they said to you or did to you or what they look like, heaven has invaded earth. When you have a hard conversation with somebody because they're stuck in sin and you decide you can't ignore it, you love them too much, heaven invaded earth. And when you use your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, heaven invades earth. And most importantly, when you wait, even though you don't have what you want yet, with poise and patience and joyfulness and unselfish love, you become the temple of God. You become the place where heaven meets earth. And that is where, as the song we've based the whole series off of, O Holy Night, that is where your soul will find its worth and you will feel and become the very thrill of hope. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you've been so good to us. You choose, you choose to bring your message to this world, to the ShopRite and to King's, to the Chester Bagel store, to a town, to a world, to our friends, to our husbands and wives and kids, to people who need the hope of God, that, Lord, you are still active and you are still near and you are still fulfilling your promises. And we are the messengers of the hope of God to all of these places. Oh, Lord, would you work in a powerful way through your Holy Spirit to convince us again that what we have is good news and that somebody in our lives needs it. Would you make us the thrill of hope to someone this Christmas? In the great name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.